I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, as Kabul has just fallen, we have with us Dr. Seth Jones, who is the head and director of our international security program at CSIS. Seth is also the Harold Brown chair at CSIS and a senior vice president. Seth, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks, Andrew, for having me on. So things are happening rapidly on the ground in Afghanistan, and, and we're in lightning speed. We're not going to be able to keep up with you know minute-by-minute coverage here. But the Taliban have entered Kabul. The Afghanistan forces have seemed to have just collapsed. What's happened here, Seth? And who is Taliban 2.0? Who is this new Taliban who's now taking over? Andrew, let me start with kind of an overview of what has happened and then get to the Taliban and its ideology. And I think it's really important for people to understand that the Afghan government and its security forces, the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, they were not defeated on the battlefield. What we did not get over the last couple of days and even weeks is a military defeat by government forces at the hands of the Taliban. What we got instead was essentially the negotiation of a surrender by various Afghan National Army units across the country, and then at the national level, uh, a surrender to the Taliban. So it was virtually a bloodless takeover by the Taliban, at least in terms of major battles. And in my conversations with some senior Afghan government officials, and in a few cases, former government officials, it appeared that one of the primary factors influencing the cost-benefit calculation of Afghan military leaders was that they were demoralized by the U.S. decision to withdraw. What they took as a an unambiguous decision by the U.S. not to send in additional forces to help them in case of Taliban gains or to provide close air support from U.S. aircraft. And probably most importantly, they, they also realized that Taliban had military intelligence and diplomatic support of every major government in the region, except primarily for the Indians. And there's, Andrew, there's this stunning photograph from a few weeks ago of, uh, of Taliban leader Mullah Broder in China with the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi. And the Chinese are indicating publicly through the meeting and the public photograph that they are, they're backing the Taliban. The Chinese have, have economic and security interests in 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 Afghanistan. So I think at the end of the day, my general sense is that Afghan national security forces recognized that they had lost their support from the U.S. The Taliban had it from the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and Pakistan as the primary backer. And it, it would have been suicidal to continue to fight. Let me just go back on something you said there. The, the last time the Taliban were in power, the only countries in the international community that backed them were Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Now we're talking about 
who? China, Russia, Pakistan, who else? I mean, you know, major, major powers backing this new version of the Taliban. Why is that? Well, there are probably two or three reasons for it. One is virtually all these governments, particularly the Chinese, Russians, and Iranians, the U.S. is their major adversary. So, I mean, I think this is essentially the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, and I think in that sense, this is about opposition in part to the U.S. I think second, this is important as well, is I think m- most governments in the region recognize that American support in Afghanistan was was waning. It's what President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden had said. So the U.S. was unlikely to continue to support the Afghan government indefinitely. The Afghan government was, and up until its final hours, you know, was had pro- lots of problems, corruption, Ill- illegitimacy, and other endemic problems. So I think in that sense, it was regional support for, or at least against a government that they assessed was ineffective. And then in particular, from that Pakistan perspective, which is the third point, this is in part an issue about the broader Indian-Pakistan great game. And since 2001, uh, Pakistan has felt, and I've heard this from senior Pakistan officials, that they are essentially surrounded by what they call the double squeeze, India on one side and an Indian-Afghan access from the other. The Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI, has long supported the Taliban as a way to balance India and to protect its Western flank. They have that now in a Taliban that is running the country. So there, I think there are a range of reasons why we're seeing governments in the region provide assistance to the Taliban today. Is Afghanistan likely to become a haven for terrorists again, as it was before we went in following September 11th? I, I think Afghanistan is likely to increasingly become a haven. I mean, it already is right now. Uh, there are, according to a recent UN report from June of 2021, over 10,000 foreign fighters in Afghanistan, including a reasonable number of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State fighters. I mean, it's worth noting, Andrew, that Taliban's ideology is deeply rooted in what's called the Hanafi school of Islamic jurisprudence. And they eschew democracy. They believe democracy is wrong on multiple fronts, and instead they support the establishment of a government by Sharia or Islamic law and the creation of Islamic emirate in the country. They have a very dark view of women and human rights. They have repressed women since their establishment in the 1990s and conducted brutal human rights uh, uh, violations against people that generally do not adhere to the Taliban's extreme version of Islam. In that environment, we have seen a close strategic, operational, tactical level relations with al-Qaeda. We also see the Taliban continuing to have relations with all the major anti-Indian groups and other militant groups operating in the region, including Central Asia. So I also expect that the Taliban for the foreseeable future, much like the Afghan government, is not going to be able to control all areas of its territory, which will provide an opportunity for organizations like the Islamic State, which have had a pretty tense historical relationship with al-Qaeda, 
to research. And in fact, Andrew, last comment here is my review of a number of jihadist digital platforms over the weekend. This is one of the most extraordinary developments since the 1989 exodus of Soviet forces, which spawned al-Qaeda that they have faced. I mean, they, they are celebrating, they are celebrating across the internet. So what does this mean? And who is this next edition of the Taliban? Do we know these people? I mean, I know Zal Khalizan has been there getting to know them and, and negotiating with them during the Trump administration and now for President Biden as well. So there is some continuity there. Do we know these people? Is there any way of getting to them? What can we do? Yeah, we do know the Taliban leadership relatively well. I mean, there have been negotiations between the U.S., the Afghan government, and senior Taliban leaders over the past few years. The, the Taliban is led by, it, it's not a democratic organization, essentially led by religious leaders. Its organizational structure is run by its Rabari Shura, or leadership council. The formal Taliban leader is Malawi Akunsada who was appointed emir after the U.S. killed his predecessor, uh, Mullah Akhtar Mansour, in a May 2016 drone strike. And so, yeah, the U.S. knows all of the Taliban leaders, and I think we'll continue to try to talk to senior officials. I just think, you know, the U.S. is lost on, along these lines. So the U.S. does not have much negotiating power at this point. I suspect that it, that if the Taliban is smart, they're going to let the U.S. evacuate its civilians and perhaps some others from the country with minimal resistance and then proceed to rule the country with an iron fist over the foreseeable future. And again, hard to state this enough. It's a return to the dark ages in Afghanistan. I really fear for women and girls and human rights and justice and democracy and all the progress that had been made, particularly in urban areas of Afghanistan over the last 20 years. This is coming to an end for now. So when you say that, I mean, we've seen images on the news in recent weeks of urban areas in Afghanistan that has yoga studios and schools and just normal type of cosmopolitan urban life. Is that all going to go dark overnight? I just don't see how any of what the Taliban considers infidel Western practices, beliefs, values, how that's going to stay intact. You know, the, the Taliban have generally operated at different paces in different areas of the country. So they may take their time in reestablishing control. I suspect that some combination of Pakistan, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, are going to tell them, hey, you've got to be really careful about mass killings right now, retribution. There certainly will be some, and there already have been, for senior Afghan military and police and intelligence officials. But I, I, I think the Taliban may be careful in the near term on large atrocities. But I think in terms of the jettisoning of what are viewed as Western values women working in general or or girls getting educated in other than very extreme versions of Islam, I think they'll be gone. And do you believe we're going to start seeing a return to forced marriages and things like that as well? I think that's certainly possible in some areas of Afghanistan, a return to forced marriages 
I mean, you know, one of the things I've noticed traveling regularly to Afghanistan over the past 20 years is many urban areas just becoming a lot more progressive. Women wearing limited or in some cases, no head coverings. I mean, the burqa is back in all cities. Women will become and already have in areas that the Taliban controls essentially subservient, second, third class citizens of Afghanistan. So what happens next? Now that the United States has pulled out and our allies are out, what should our strategy be and what are our lingering interests, if any, in your mind? Well, I think the, the U.S. has got to plan and prepare to execute now at least two kinds of steps. One is U.S. has to gear up for what will likely be a huge humanitarian catastrophe. Afghans right now are, Afghanistan has the third largest number of refugees in the world behind Syria and Venezuela. That will almost certainly change quickly. We can already see the numbers of people that have flooded into Kabul and that are likely then to depart the country. So what role is the U.S. going to play in supporting humanitarian efforts for internally displaced persons or refugees that leave to try to go to Europe or, or other countries in the region? And, and what kind of assistance is the U.S. going to be willing to provide and how is it going to do? So I think that's one really important step is the U.S. has got to increase its humanitarian assistance to suffering Afghans. The second is there are, again, over 10,000 foreign fighters in Afghanistan, including al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, according to a recent U.N. assessment. What is the U.S. going to do in checking those kinds of organizations in Afghanistan? Is the U.S. going to conduct some limited strikes against terrorist camps? It should. It's done this, frankly, fairly effectively over the last two decades against terrorists operating in Pakistan, some in Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, and other countries. I think the U.S. has got to do the same thing in Afghanistan moving forward. I don't think the U.S., the American population will be able to accept another attack on American soil or against the U.S. embassy in the region or elsewhere emanating from Afghan soil. I think the U.S. has got to be proactive in countering the resurgence of terrorist groups operating in Afghanistan. But we've heard no plan of the U.S. government to take these kinds of actions, either humanitarian or counterterrorism. I think we need to hear them fast. So what, what's a good counterterrorism strategy that the U.S. should be pursuing? I know that's something you've thought about and, you know, are going to present in your work in the coming days. Well, I, you know, the U.S. has the ability to fly NQ-9 drones from bases like al -Udib. There are some updated NQ-9, uh, what they call the NQ-9Bs. They're capable of, of carrying a higher payload and flying longer range missions that you can loiter around Afghanistan, conduct intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and then strike targets. And so that, I think, is critical to have intelligence collection assets above Afghanistan and to continue to have intelligence resources on the ground that can collect intelligence from signals, intelligence, or SIGINT, have some human sources that can conduct intelligence against terrorist sanctuaries, safe havens, locations, individuals in Afghanistan, and they can strike from aerial vehicles, unmanned or uncrewed aerial vehicles like the MQ-9s. 
that I think is critical. I think over the long run, it would will also be helpful to have some kind of a U.S. ground branch intelligence presence, possibly a special operations presence operating under what's called Title 50 authority, so covert ability to conduct covert action in Afghanistan that has a, some eyes on the ground, much like the U.S. has had in Libya and, and Somalia and other countries, including Yemen. So I think it's a little bit of a covert presence on the ground and a presence from the air. I, I think U.S. has got to make a case for continuing to deal with the, the terrorism threat. Now, the Taliban has never had a real answer to U.S. air power, correct? Correct. The Taliban, it doesn't, it doesn't own aircraft. I mean, it possibly could get surface-to-air missiles from states in the region and try to shoot them down the way CIA supported the Mujahideen with the Stingers in the 1980s, Andrew. That's certainly a possibility. But again, if the U.S. is flying mostly unmanned or uncrewed, aerial vehicles over Afghanistan, you know, you're not going to lose American lives, pilots, because there aren't any human pilots in those aircraft. So doesn't that still present us with a tremendous advantage if we want to, you know, maintain some level of security in the region? Yes, it does present the U.S. with an advantage. The one caveat will be it's going to have to fly over airspace somewhere. So if those drones fly out of Al-Udid and Qatar, U.S. is still going to have to get basically buy-in from countries that it flies over. It's not going to get that from Iran. Pakistan will be an interesting question if it's, tar- you know, depending on who it's targeting. So, I mean, that's probably the one, one issue it's going to have to negotiate routes to fly over. So it's been said that Pakistan is the most dangerous place on earth. Do you think Afghanistan could become a corollary to that? with the Taliban in charge? Andrew, as I look at the next couple of years, I see two countries that I'm most concerned about as sanctuaries for terrorist groups. One is Syria, including in the area of northwestern Syria around Idlib, which there are pretty large numbers of uh, particularly al-Qaeda-linked fighters. The other is Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan has such enormous symbolic value. It is the birthplace of al-Qaeda. It is now the location of the defeat, not just of one superpower, the Soviet Union, but now a second with the United States. You can add the British in the three Anglo-Afghan wars and actually bring in three major powers, which is why I titled one of my books, Afghanistan, the Graveyard of Empires. So I think that's kind of the sad reality is Afghanistan will likely become a central hub for jihadist activity. Seth, this is the, you know, age-old question, but why is Afghanistan so impossible for superpowers to defeat? Andrew, I think part of the reason is that the resources, the available resources to any government there are limited. Afghanistan is landlocked. It's extremely poor. It's hard to extract resources, particularly in the middle of a war. So the government has to rely on outside support in order to operate. And the challenge in a landlocked country like Afghanistan 
is the you know the, the two two additional challenges. One is the geography is pretty conducive, particularly mountainous terrain, for terrorists able to hide. It's got a cave structure in those areas, and then third, that weak Afghanistan with a geography that is conducive to insurgent and terrorist activity is surrounded by neighbors that are vying for control of the country. So Afghanistan has been at the whim of its neighbors, whether it's been the Soviets, Pakistan, the Chinese, the Iranians, the Americans, Europeans. And I I think it means that it is a weak country at the end of the day that is at the mercy of outsiders. And it's difficult to conquer for those reasons if there are countries that don't support the direction you're going in that are capable of being spoilers. That's what Pakistan has been over the last 20 years. People forget this. The entire Taliban leadership structure, the entire leadership structure for the past 20 years has been located in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. That has allowed the Taliban strategically to continue to operate. Seth, this has clearly been a bipartisan failure, both from Congress multiple presidents. It spanned several administrations, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. There's sure to be some partisan mudslinging going on in the aftermath of this U.S. withdrawal. How do you think the United States can overcome partisanship in this and react to this in a way that's constructive? Andrew, I think it's going to be hard to overcome the partisanship. I think there's a lot of finger pointing at the moment not just at the Biden administration's decision to precipitously withdraw from Afghanistan, but also from three previous presidents, two Republicans and one Democrat that have been struggling in Afghanistan. But I do think there has to be some bipartisan discussion about what the U.S. can do moving forward. Looking backward, I don't see any way around it. There's going to be a lot of mudslinging that just comes with the territory in Washington. But I think moving forward on what to do next, I think there have to be some very serious discussions by the executive branch, members of Congress, about what the U.S. needs to do moving forward on the humanitarian front, on the counterterrorism front, and then also what to deal with what will almost certainly be a growing Chinese, Russian, and Iranian activity in Afghanistan in ways that may not necessarily be conducive to U.S. national security. So there are some steps moving forward that I think there could be some bipartisan discussion, even if that's not going to be the case looking backward. Seth, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure we'll be turning back to you in the days to come as this unfolds. Thank you very much for this time today and helping us get to the truth of the matter about what's happening in Afghanistan. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 